So we pick it up in chapter 5, verse 1. Then they, that is the apostles, came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he, Jesus, had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. So literally out of a cemetery comes this man who is demon-possessed, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar off, he ran and worshipped him, and he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, that is, Jesus said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. And then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send him out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains, so all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave permission. And then the unclean spirits went out, entered the swine, and there were about 2,000, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. And they, they went to see what it was that had happened, and then they came to Jesus and they saw the one who had been demon-possessed, had the legion, sitting and clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed about the swine. Then they began to plead with him, that is, Jesus, to depart from their region. And when he got in the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them, what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. This really is an amazing story. It is in three of the Gospels. We know from other Gospel accounts, Matthew's, that there are actually two men and Mark and Luke focus on the one. And this is the same type of situation with blind Bartimaeus where there's more than one, but the focus goes to the one. It always comes down to the one. It really comes down to how far Jesus will go and how much he'll push and nudge on his apostles and his leaders to understand how far he'll go for one. The value of one soul is very valuable to the Lord. Every life matters. Every life has potential. Every life has opportunity. And one thing the Lord wants us all to have in our new journeys, in our new seasons with new songs and new wine and new adventures and crossing over to the other side is that we never lose sight of the value of every human being. We need to understand that there's no randomness with any human life and that every soul, every created has, it, has its origin from the Lord as declared in Psalm 139 that God has formed them in their mother's womb by David in that psalm. As declared by Paul the Apostle in Acts 17, that on Mars Hill, that God has predetermined who we'd be, our gender, our ethnicity, when our timeline would be coming into the realm of our timeline in time, space, and matter, when our generation would be, what our boundaries would be. There's no randomness in the families we're born into, the DNA that makes us up, the good things about our DNA, the bad things about our DNA being sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And there's no randomness in our ethnicity 
or any of that stuff. There is divine design and purpose in every life. And it's really important as we go through the journey of life that every one of us in this room and everyone who names the name of Jesus Christ as Savior, we get past our personal opinions and our personal judgments that we form about any human being, however downcast or however prideful on the extremes of the human experience. And we have to learn by the Lord to see the value of every life and the potential for every life. That's really important in in the gospel and serving Jesus Christ is to understand the value of every life. This going to the other side, it's a carryover from the text last week, as I said earlier. If you think about this journey from Mark and Luke's account, it focuses on one person. Now again, Matthew tells us there was two. But I believe the core application of this story is about the value of one person and never that far gone. Yesterday, when I was with my family for lunch down in San Diego County, and I was discussing things with my sister, who's come back a long way from being homeless on the streets for five years with a grocery cart and out of her mind, and having her life restored to her and uh, 18 months now sobriety, going to DUI school. I find out why it's taking her going to be like two years of DUI school because she has some pretty serious DUIs. They, they gauge your recovery to have your license restored based upon how, how uh, intoxicated you were on the breathalyzer as to whether you can be restored in three months, six months, or two years. And if you have more than a couple of DUIs driving under the influence, and it's longer, and if you had a real serious one way past the legal limit, it's even more so. So it's for our safety, and my sister would agree with that. So she's got a a long journey back. But I I, I share with her about um, how important her life is and how how valuable it is that she's going forward. And every time I see someone homeless now, I think of the potential in their life to be sitting in a sane mind, in a right mind, having lunch with her, their parents and their adult siblings and talking about the good things of the Lord and the road to recovery and being fully restored in society. I see that. And God's taught me that lesson, obviously, through my sister and how far she, she was a straight-A student in high school, so just keep that in mind, and how far you know crystal meth and alcohol and all that took her and bad men and bad decisions and everything else. And, um, but in the course of speaking with her to encourage her, she was talking about uh, jail and how difficult jail really is and, and really being incarcerated and all that kind of stuff. And I said, well, you know, I received a letter one time from a person who wrote me a letter and they asked me, do you really believe God can forgive me? And do you really believe there's a plan for my life? Now they're in their thirties at the time they wrote me this letter. And I said, absolutely. Jesus died for your sins. The sin that's unpardonable is to resist the Holy Spirit to not be saved under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And you know, my, I could tell my sister was taking, you know, great comfort in that. And we, you know, we just talked about like everyone of us in the room could have been the person that killed somebody in a DUI accident. We, you know, you just, we're just talking about the grace of God and the goodness of God, but the value of one. And even today, because looking at my sister yesterday, I just marveled at the restoration of her countenance and these things. I mean, she was homeless for five years. That's a long time to be living on the streets with a grocery cart. Lots of fights. You know, all, just, it's a, it's a, you know, you see it, and there's plenty of homeless people in Huntington and in our area. We see them all the time. And even today, driving on PCH, I was at a light where I just was looking at a homeless person, and I just, my heart was filled with empathy for them. And uh, I can't save every homeless person. I can't save everyone that has mental challenges or scarred by sins of what other people did to them. But I can certainly have 
empathy for them, and I can certainly have a predisposition to understand the value of their life and the hope of their life being restored. And these things don't come naturally. I've been very rude in times past to people who are just like, just get away, you know? And sometimes you have to do that because you're protective and the dads and the husbands understand that. But still, we need to understand the value of every person. This person would have been terrifying in the story. I mean, what's scarier than surviving a storm as a fisherman that thought it was gonna take your life? You're trying to calibrate who Jesus is. They test the wind and the waves and knock it off and they do. And then you get to the other side and you knew something bad was gonna happen. And sure enough, here comes a madman with no clothes on and his buddy, and they're screaming, all cut up. They're cutters. They're all cut up. They're raving lunatics. They're demon-possessed. I mean, it's, it's like your worst-case scenario. I mean, you can almost picture, and I don't say this facetiously, a couple of the apostles like saying, I told you so. And sometimes you have to face your worst fear in the ministry when you're called to serve other people. A deranged person is in all of us. We're all just one slippery slope away from the Lord releasing us to ourselves and permitting us to go into the pigs and live like pigs. My sister actually sent me a text today and she said, I hate Satan, I hope that's okay. I didn't even comment because I didn't need to because I commented on other things, but I mentioned last week that Jesus doesn't accept testimony of who he is from the demons because they have no testimony. Do you understand? Demons have no testimony. Testimony for Christ is based upon those who have been saved by his redeeming grace, by the power of his blood, by the hope of heaven and being born again in the transformation. That is our testimony. The demons have no testimony. There is no chance for restoration for the demons. And I would say to my sister, I'd say to all of us, he hates you too. So just, that just that's just a, a given. He, he's the father of lies and those that were cast out with him, they're, they're hell-bent on destroying everybody and everything. They know they have a limited time and they, they exist in our dimension to disrupt in the plans of God in our lives as a test for which tree we're going to choose, to submit to the Lord and the tree of life or to submit to the devil and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Nothing has changed from the dawn of creation. They're like there to give us the chance to permit ourselves to go live like pigs, just like them. But Jesus Christ saves us and gives us a testimony to be Lord of our life and not permit us to do things as we would trust in him. Did you notice? The demons asked permission to go into the pigs, and the man that was healed asked permission to join Jesus, and Jesus said no. You see the difference? The demons aren't under the lordship of Jesus, and he lets them, he permits them to go do what they want to do, to go and have with the pigs. But the one who's been redeemed by Jesus is submitted to the authority of Jesus, and Jesus says, no, you're not going on the boat back with me. You're going to go home, and you tell everybody what great things God has done for you. See, he's now at the tree of life. He has had that transforming experience, to say the least, and he now has a testimony. Which brings us to our first main application about this story. Apart from the value of every human being, which is just is all over this chapter, many of you know my own testimony. When we went to Vermont, all the hardships that we went through in 14 months of living in Vermont, all that we left behind in Virginia, all the uncertainty that we faced in, in New England to plant that Calvary Chapel there, and all the dreams and visions I had for great things for the kingdom of God in a faraway land, I led one person in a prayer to receive Christ in that year there. And... It was at the time that I was teaching this text in Luke's account that I was able to lead that person to the Lord, uh, Owen the dishwasher. He was in his 30s at that time. And when I left Vermont, the number one lesson I learned 
as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not about what God isn't doing. It's about what he is doing. And he took us to the other side when he took us to Vermont to teach me and to teach us so I can share with you how important every human soul is. We lost, you know, we had something when we went to Vermont. When we came back from Vermont, we had nothing as far as assets and equity. It was everything for the value of one soul. Very important lesson for me at the age of 34 with a calling in ministry for the rest of my life. And I've used that powerfully. And I just time and time again, I'm reminded not to write people off, not throw, you know, throw them under the bus and discount the value of their life. So please learn from my testimony and what God taught me 25 years ago, the value of one soul. Because it's a lesson we don't want to miss. If you have a short life or a long life, when you step into eternity and you stand before Jesus, and we will, we all want to stand before him having learned this one lesson, not just the greatness of his grace and the power of his blood to save us, but the value of every human life, the value of every human life as that blood and that grace is applied to him. And I really learned that. So that's the broad lesson that's really important for us to understand. But there's another lesson, and it is the testimony. There is something beautiful about a man who's out of his mind, possessed by multiple demons, who is in a right mind, clothed, and at peace. Isn't that beautiful? Like, I mean, that really is, it's a picture of humanity. We're going to have Barabbas coming up on Saturday night in the Luke text. And Barabbas is a type of us, right? The criminal death sentence. He gets released. Jesus goes to the cross. Barabbas is a, is a type of us. Well, this guy is a type of us too in our conversion. This guy is a type of us because there's a bit of madness and craziness in all of us before we come to Christ. We are not in our right mind. In fact, the Bible says that natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit, nor does, we're not, they're not comprehensible. There's none who seeks after the Lord, no, not one. And all we like sheep have gone astray and all of our good works are as filthy rags. So in a way, we're all just uh, exposed as madmen and mad women before the Lord, whether we have a, an esteemed life by human standards or we're homeless by human standards. We are all out of our minds without Christ. We're out of our minds. We're not in the right mind. And we need to have the mind of the Spirit. I, pray, I pretty much pray every day that I'd have the mind of the Spirit. I, well, I do pray for that every day, that I'd have the mind of the Spirit. We need a right mind. We need to see things the way the Lord sees them. And this man, we're told, as you focus on verse 15, that when it all said and done, they saw this man clothed and in his right mind. Now, that's good news for the kingdom of God. That's good news for the man. It's good news for his parents. And I would hope his adult siblings would be grateful for that news, too. And can I get an amen? Don't we all want crazy men out of their minds with no clothes on, cutting themselves in the right mind, clothed and at peace? That's a really good thing. That's what we want. That That's... That's what Jesus Christ does. The carbon prints of Jesus Christ on people's lives by the Holy Spirit is to take madness, nakedness, and insanity and bring peace and purpose and a, a covering. That's what Jesus does for us. And we see that in this man. Of course, the irony is the people would prefer this man running around naked out of his mind in the tombs cutting himself as opposed to being in his right mind. Some people just prefer to raise pigs and have naked people out of their minds running around their city. That's what some people prefer. That's what some families prefer. That's what some cities prefer. That's what some states prefer. That's what some countries prefer. Some people in societies prefer people out of their minds, raising pigs, and they learn how to function in that dysfunction as fallen human beings in a fallen world, devoid of the knowledge of God, the purposes of God, and the hope of God. And they're, what do they do? 
They see what God can do, a madman restored, and they say, could you just please go away? Isn't it crazy? Like some people are are more scared of the light than they are of the darkness. In this story, what scares us more? The naked man out of his mind, cutting himself, screaming, or the naked man clothed in his right mind? And believe me, there are people that you work with and you know, they're more scared of what Jesus does when he makes put someone in the right mind. I've seen many people come to Christ where their family members say, no, we liked you more when you're selling weed and stoned and high on drugs than being a Jesus freak. Or we liked you more when you're like uh, totally a reprobate person with everybody and debasing your language and your lifestyle than you being, you know, like this set apart for the Lord. Some people don't like the light. And that's what Jesus said in John 3. People don't come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. And these people, they, they're a city. They come out. They're a town. They go, you know what? We don't want Jesus. This happens all over the world all the time. This happens all over Asia. Missionaries from Gospel for Asia, missionaries from different uh, ministry groups and places like India and Bangladesh and these places. China, they go into a town, they share the gospel, and they get run from town. They get beat, flogged to death, and all this other kind of stuff. There's a lot of villages that don't want people in their right mind serving Jesus. But that's their business, and they'll live with it for all eternity in their minds in the dimension where they're going, and hell's a long time to be wrong in outer darkness to think about what you thought was esteemed as opposed to what you really is esteemed. Well, those who call good evil and evil good, the Bible says, and God said in the Old Testament through the prophet Isaiah. But even so, they're not the focal point, are they? Because what, what can you do? You focus on what God is doing. This man was transformed, this human being, and Jesus said, no, I, these are the apostles. You've been changed. You're going to go tell people what I've done. And this is that key thought for us, the testimony. This man had a testimony. We should have a testimony. There's a testimony of life before Christ. And then there's like when God did a work in our life, when we began to grow and draw near to the Lord. And then there's a testimony of our life after Christ. I recently ordered the book that Joe Gibbs, the famous football coach and uh, NASCAR race owner, he wrote it back in 2001, and in that, this book, he's a very strong Christian. Many of you know I went to Joe Gibbs Racing last year as part of my coach training for three days, and I was just completely enthralled with the whole uh, Joe Gibbs Racing, how they do things, how the Lord's in all of it all, and you could just, it was just so impressive. But in this book that Joe Gibbs wrote, and of course Joe Gibbs' influence is just so far beyond religion. I mean, people, all kinds of people would buy, buy his book, you know, just for coaching and life skills and all these things, but... The first 30 pages is Joe Gibbs' testimony. He talks about going forward at an altar call when he was nine years old. And he talks about being, you know, Don Coriel's assistant coach when Don Coriel was at San Diego State. Jen John McKay's assistant coach at USC. And this whole journey he went through, but being devoid and empty of the power of the Holy Spirit. And then how he had a pastor when he was an assistant coach at Arkansas football in the Southeast Conference. And he went to this church and he began to see the life of Christ in this person. And he recommitted his life to Christ. He went forward at that church. And the first 30 pages is about his testimony in Christ. He's like, I'm going to give you life skills, but they don't mean anything if you don't know who Christ is and what he's done in my life and that this is all the fruit of knowing Jesus. It's a testimony. Those Harvest Crusades, I've mentioned this even recently. I remember being on staff at Calvary Vista in the 80s when they were really getting their momentum going at the Harvest Crusades. And Greg would send out Ricky Ryan, who's a, you know, he's just a fireball, if you know Ricky Ryan. And he'd come out and he'd tell the church, you want to be able to share your testimony in one minute, five minutes, and 
20 minutes. In other words, the real short version of your testimony, the five-minute version of your testimony, and an extended version of your testimony, depending on who's listening, almost like the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The shorter version, the extended version. But the testimonies are simple. What was life before Christ? How you encountered Christ and your life after Christ. So let's look at this man. Before Christ, I'm out of my mind. I have no clothes on. I'm a raving lunatic. I cut myself and no chains will hold me. That was my life without Christ. How I met Christ is he came into my world and he cast the demons out of me and he restored my sanity. That's what happened. I had a conversion on this day when this happened. These pigs went running down the field and suddenly my mind was restored to me and I was made anew in Christ in that way. And since that time, I have my clothes on, I'm in a right mind, and I've got the joy of the Lord. See the testimony? Before Christ, how you came to Christ, and after Christ. And even in sharing my own testimony, I like to focus on how I was religious before Christ, but in the spring of 87, through reading the Gospel of John and listening to K-Wave at the same time, when I ended the Gospel of John, I was a different person than I began it in the spring of 87. It took me two months to go through John. I took notes, memorized Bible verses, and even now I'm doing John in my devotion. It reminded me, every time I go through John, every couple of years, it reminds me of my conversion. You know, I'd never read, I heard Be Born Again, and I read, I was like, wow, what does that mean, you know? And so I wrote it down, and it's like, that, and then after that, by the summer of 87, I was going to church all the time, and I was, became a different person. I didn't have the foul mouth anymore, and I was inviting my friends to church, and it was, it was, this was like this before. This is what happened. I read the Gospel of John in the spring of 87 while going to junior college, and then this is what my life looked like after that. And then I met Brian Broderson, and he discipled me, and I was called into ministry. See, I just gave it to you in 45 seconds. That's, that's my testimony. I encourage all of us to know how to frame our testimony. Just that quick conversation, just how to frame it. Just before Christ, this, how Christ came into my life, and then Christ after that, and what life is like in Christ. And of course, the emphasis isn't being naked and out of your mind. The emphasis is that Christ met you where you're at and being in the right mind and all the good things God's done. Jesus said to him, go and tell them, verse 19, he said, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. Have you done that? Like, it's not a have to, you want to. It's, it's good news. Tell your friends and your family. I've been doing that for 31 years. Hey, let's pray for Barbie right now, like I said at lunch yesterday. And just, yeah, well, let's pray for that. You know, and you just, everyone needs a Jesus freak in the family, right? You got all the other kind of freaks, right? You got the people that don't stop talking. You got the drug addicts and the recovery people and the alcoholics and, you know, and the, the, the takers and the givers and the pump fakers and shakers and movers. You got it all. Every family needs a Jesus freak. And after a while, when you learn how to just carry yourself in a healthy way, you know, they kind of like having you around. Uh, could you say the blessing? It took 30 years of me being the Jesus freak in my in-laws family. This last Christmas was the first time I was ever asked to say a blessing for the food. I always consider it a road game. It's their Christmas. I'm not going to say, hey, we need to pray for the food. But Aunt Mary asked me to pray for the meal, Jennifer's sister. I was like, for sure. And then my father-in-law was like, kept talking all night about the prayer. Everyone want to talk about politics. And he's like, oh, the prayer, the prayer, Joey's prayer. You know, it's like, he's just locked in on it. You know, like you get in your late 80s, you lock in on something, you know. <laughs> the prayer, the prayer, you know. And, and uh, it's a good thing. Yeah, and then what happened? So the same t- uh, about the same time, I, I 
first time ever I take my dad home from my mom's and we pull up at the assisted living place. I, I, I say, dad, like I always like to say a quick prayer for my dad, but only give me about 10 seconds to get it before he wants to interrupt me or something. I'm like, Lord, thank you for my dad. Bless his day. Keep him happy. You know, that kind of thing. And, and, uh, and I said, dad, I'm going to say a prayer for you. He goes, well, actually, I want to pray for you. My entire life, my dad has never prayed for I cannot remember one time my dad prayed for me. And my dad said a prayer thanking God for his son. Isn't that crazy? Like that's, I mean, like, I mean, I, I, it's, it's just, it's, it's the testimony. Everyone needs a Jesus freak. My dad's walked out on more of my Bible studies than all of you put together. Okay. <laughs> and you might get to go to the bathroom or you got this or they need you to nurse you. Listen, my dad was like right there and boom, every time. Okay. So, you know, 88, maybe still around. Maybe there's more to come, right? John chapter two, the latter wine's better than the first wine. So maybe the best wine is right around the corner. And I certainly want to believe it for that way. But we need a testimony. And, and then the consistency gets there. You know, my sister was talking about how people don't take her seriously yet. And I, and I said, well, 18 months is a good, it's a good start for someone's sobriety. You know, like, that's a good start. Listen, man, you know, a year and a half, that's why the judges like you. That's why your probation officer likes you. You're kind of like the model at the, the woman's home. Like, it is a good thing. 18 months of sobriety from being a, pushing a grocery cart around for five years out of your mind. That's, a, that's good. But wisdom's justified by our children. So the longer you have your walk with the Lord and you proclaim his praises to your family and your friends and they see you every day clothed in the right mind and going forward proclaiming his praises, then that testimony gets stronger and stronger and you begin to win more and more people on the journey to celestial city like Pilgrim's Progress says. And then you step into eternity and there you go. Good fruit for the ages. That's what we want. It's a great story. The value of one. The city's going to do what they're going to do. But you, restored mind, you got a testimony, live it. And like I said, everyone needs a Jesus freak in the family. Someone's got to pray at Christmas time and sooner or later they'll ask you. And if they don't, at least you're ready for the call up, right? Yeah. So we read on now. The second part of our night consists of the, the events when they come back to the religious side of the lake. So he's clothed in his right mind. He goes his way. He's happy. And everyone's marveled that this man's been converted and he's completely different. But now Jesus and the gang go back to the other side. We read this in verse 21. Now, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, when he saw him, he fell at his feet, begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. Uh, She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she had said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus immediately knowing himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, you see the multitude thronging you and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Now we're going to read on because this woman and Jairus' daughter are connected. So let's read on in verse 35. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house and said to him, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. 
And then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. And when he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was tw- she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and said that something should be given her to eat. These stories are connected. You can't really separate them. See, the story starts with Jairus coming to Jesus, pleading for his daughter. And then the woman touches his tassel and gets healed. And her healing is connected to Jairus getting the news that his daughter is dead. And then Jesus goes to Jairus' house and First of all, there's two females in this story. Now, Jairus is the dad, and the daughter is his daughter. Jairus, we know, he's a ruler of the synagogue. He's an important person. He's a religious person. And maybe by that time, the leaders were already rejecting Jesus. But you know, when your daughter, your only child is dying at 12, you don't care what people think. And I've said this many times. When death is at the door for your loved ones, you don't care, okay? You get perspective you otherwise don't have. A couple years ago, I was listening to Greg Laurie at the Harvest Crusade, and he was bringing it. It was on the radio. And he was just bringing it without any uh, capitulation of truth concerning pro-life, the value of all life, like I was just sharing and all this stuff. And I was like, man, if he's trying to, like, you know, appease people. It's not working. Like, he is just flat out bringing it. I was so proud of him. I thought, well, you know, he's buried a son. The more that you have invested in eternity, the less you care what people think of you in time. It's that simple. The more loved ones that you have in eternity, the less you care what people think of time. And the, why, the more you're connected to eternity, the more you realize the folly of everything and everybody in time apart from the Lord. Years ago, it used to drive me nuts when like uh, some kind of awards were going on in Hollywood for music or acting or whatever. I don't even care. It was on the other night. I'm like, the, Jake and Leah had it on. So I was like, I don't care. They're, they're, all, they're, they're, they're perishing. It doesn't... It doesn't matter what they think or what they're doing. Jesus is coming. He's going to reign in Jerusalem, and we're reigning with them. I don't care. Those little gold things they win, whatever, it all gets left behind, or your kids break them. It doesn't matter. You know, they're like, they're like me in the world. We're legends in our own mind. It doesn't matter. Jesus matters. Life and death matters. Relationships with people that God's given you matter. Your marriage matters. Your grandkids matter. Your children matter. Your adult children matter. Your adult siblings matter. Like the immediate people. We live our lives and we're gone. And it's eternity. And it's the people that you have as your family. And it's serving others as best you know how in and through the local church. And having a vision for the ends of the earth for the gospel. And then we're gone. All that fame and glory. All that wealth. It doesn't matter. It's all, like we saw last week, it's the cares of this life that choke out a crop and prevent it from ever taking, uh, coming to pass. We want to be the 30, 60, 100 fold. And death is painful, but for those that are growing in the Lord and bearing much fruit, death is yet another reminder. It reminds us of eternity and it gives us focus and perspective on what really matters. 
and we do care what people think about us, and we do have feelings, and we do have a reputation, and we think much more of ourselves than we should. I'm speaking for myself. And we, we really don't care. And, you know, I figured this out. I didn't want to look old at 35. I didn't want to look over at 55. I didn't want to look old at, you know, at 45 and 55. And I'm not going to want to look old when I'm 65. So the first thing I say when I see elderly people is, you look great. I saw my mom go, Mom, you look gorgeous. And I mean it. Like, we do care what people think. But when people we love are on the verge of eternity, we care less about what people think. I remember Jeremy Camp telling me after he lost his first wife, he goes, Joey, I can preach to anyone anytime, anywhere. No one shuts up a man who buried his bride. There's an equity that comes from that in the kingdom of God. Jairus doesn't care what people think. You know, when the blind man was healed in John chapter 9, and they're going to cast him out of the synagogue, and he's like, he didn't even care. He's like, oh, he's like, whatever, man. I was blind my whole life. I see, and you guys, you guys are clowns, man. I don't care what you think. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, it's the new living Joey translation. <laughs> There's a pigeon Bible. Why not the Joey Bible? These guys are clowns, man. <laughs> but he just said, you guys are, I don't care what you think. I was blind until this day. And Jesus opened my eyes, and you threw me out of the synagogue. What's it matter? I couldn't even go in the synagogue because I was blind, and you looked down on me. You all look down on me. His parents cared what they thought. Ask him, you know, because they feared being cast out of the synagogue. There's a cutting edge that death brings that sharpens our focus in fear of death. This is his only daughter. Makes it even more, well, it's even more desperate. So this is daddy's girl, and it's his only girl. There's no son, it's her. The woman with the flow of blood, 12 years blood. Jairus' daughter, 12 years old. 12 and 12. That's the magic number in this text. 12 and 12. Did you get that? 12 and 12. You've heard me teach this passage. You know where I was going with it. 12 and 12. So the entire time that Jairus' daughter is growing up with her daddy, being the important, you know, religious leader, the ruler of the synagogue, she gets the best toys, you know. She gets American Girl dolls every Christmas. She gets them for her birthday. The best. I mean, she's got her room and, oh, like, I know because I did it for Hannah and Leah. It's just like the best. And even if he didn't have a lot of wealth, he still, you know, when you've got one child, you just do everything. Like, it's just like, it didn't even matter. We have time for what we want to do, and we have money for what we really want to spend it on. And when you've got ch- one child, you make time for that child, and you spend money on that child, especially when it's daddy's little girl. The best. So I, I heard of a birthday party last week where uh, tweener, uh, one of the girls in our church, it's a tweener, was having a birthday party, and they, the family rented the big limousine and had like 20 girls involved, and they're going all these places. I'm like, we done that. We did the double birthday sleepover with second and fourth grade with Hannah and Leah. We had 40 kids spend the night at our house in Cardiff with tents in the backyard. We looked like the Jews in the wilderness, man. It was crazy. <laughs> oh, we just went for it. You, they're young once, and you spoil your kids, and you just go for it. Rock and roll, you do it. You love your kids. Jairus' daughter would have grown up in the church and in the synagogue there and learned Bible verses, the Old Testament, all those things. She would have, more would have expected of her like a preacher's kid. You know, it's not fair, but that happens. And she, and she was just, you know, when dad would be ministering after her service, she would run up and he'd, he, he, if he was like most dads, he'd make time for his baby girl. He'd be at work and she'd run and say, oh, daddy, daddy. And he'd say, hey, you guys, go away. I'm going to listen to my daughter like Chuck would do for Cheryl or whatever, you know, like Pastor Chuck. You know, like, it all stops. And then the sickness came, and she's dying. And all of a sudden, all that joy is just all that sorrow and heaviness, and you don't care what people think. But for that 12 years, that was her life. Pony rides, 
limo parties, boomers, whatever. It was fun, fun, fun. And if she was one of my daughters, that's how it was, okay? So I pulled from my own experiences with my kids. But this other woman, this is interesting, 12 years, because of her flow of blood from her womanly things, um, she couldn't go in the synagogue. So that uncleanness would be considered unclean, almost like leprosy. So the 12 years that Jairus' daughter is in the synagogue and growing up and having fun and you know being daddy's girl, this girl could never go in the synagogue. She's spending all of her money to, to take away her pain and her suffering while Jairus would have been spending money to make joy for his daughter. See the contrast? You can see it. In our human experience, we can picture this. And some of this I'm saying would be like, some of this I'm saying would be speculative, but was actually factual without a doubt and out questioning the context is Jairus' daughter had a position of uh, esteemed position in society as Jairus' daughter, as a 12-year-old. This woman with a 12-year flow of blood could not go in the synagogue. Those are two things we could be sure of, without a doubt. So the father begging for his daughter on this side, Jesus to come, and this woman just as desperate for her healing to be delivered from suffering. And I draw your attention to verse 34. After she was healed, Jesus said, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Be healed. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. This, this, this is the daily double. First of all, she's healed. Her faith is commended. Now remember, during the storm, those guys were asked, Where is your faith? And here, this woman with the full of blood, she latches onto Jesus' robe, and he goes, your faith is commended. Which the first thing is, Jesus promised great things that we could do. And just rereading John 14 the other day, I thought, I want to do greater things. I want to believe for better wine than the early wine, if you understand the context of John chapter 2. You read John 14, and Jesus said, greater works than than these I've done, you will do, if you obey me and believe my word. I'm like, wow, so like, i got to get her some greater works. Your faith has made you well. And we say this quite often around here, that if God doesn't do great things in and through my life, our lives, this church, and our timeline, let it not be because of unbelief, but let it be because he just chose in our timeline, it was just different. Like the book of Judges, we had a bad judge versus a good judge. Or like in Kings, we had bad kings instead of good kings. You know, let it not be because we didn't believe. Don't step into eternity missing what God has because you didn't believe him for great things and you didn't believe that you could touch his robe and be healed. You want to grab onto that robe and you want to grab on that robe of Jesus and believe you can be healed and transformed. Amen. That's who we want to be. From this day to the last day. Even on the worst day, I'm grabbing on his robe and I'm getting my healing and I'm getting the blessing that God has for me for time and eternity and transformation of my character. So he commends her faith. But look what he says to her daughter. Isn't it really cool? He calls her daughter. He did lots of things for other women. He doesn't call them daughter. He called her daughter. Jesus said, I always do those things that please the Father. No one has seen the Father, but the only begotten of the Father, he has declared him, Jesus Christ, who is full of grace and truth. He that has seen me has seen the Father. Philip said, show us the Father. And Jesus said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. You know what this woman sees right there? She sees the Father in Jesus. He says, daughter. Boom. He calls her daughter. When Jesus looks at you after you've touched his robe and he's healed you and you're a woman with a flow of blood for 12 years and you've been ostracized from society and he looks at you and calls you daughter, you understand the heart of God right there from here to eternity. You just understood the heart of God because the eyes of Jesus looked at you and he commends you and says, go in peace. Your faith, you're healed. And he calls 
her daughter. You're in my family. Jairus' daughter is in his will and his trust and his estate. And Jesus says, you're my daughter. You're in my will, my trust, and my estate. Daughter, your faith has healed you. I love it. And right when he says that, these guys come to Jairus and say, your daughter's dead. Like, this is so heavy, what's going on in this story. And Jesus looks at Jairus while he was still speaking. So he calls, verse 34, he calls the woman daughter. And in verse 35, while he was still speaking, these people say, your daughter's dead. So Jesus is calling the woman with the full of blood for 12 years, daughter. And then this messenger comes at the same time and says, your daughter's dead. Daughter, daughter, occupying the same space, same conversation within 10 to 15 seconds of each other. And Jesus looks at Jairus and says, do not be afraid, verse 36, only believe. Man, this is heavy stuff. I love this story. And they are intertwined, these two. They're just, the, the, two the two, Jairus' daughter and this woman, the 12 years, they are meant to be together in all three gospels that they're in. They are together, the same storyline. So Jesus goes to the house of Jairus, The people, they ridicule him. Verse 40, we saw that they ridiculed him. You can't let ridicule stop you from doing what God's called you to do. Jesus always did those things to please the Father, which I just shared a moment ago. People ridicule you when you are obeying the Father's will at times. And you cannot let the ridicule of humanity stop you from obedience in the things of the Lord. He took Peter, John, and James into that room and the parents. It was a special moment. It was a unique thing. It was a physical resurrection of of the 12-year-old Jairus' daughter. I can't even begin, nor can you, to wrap our minds around the joy from the heaviness. Because I've, I've, I've been to this house. You don't need to raise your hands. But you know what this house is like when you come up to the house? And it's the house where a child has passed. It is heavy. It is very heavy. Jack, I know that you know what that feels like. I know what that feels like. Tammy, you know what that feels like. When you go to a house where a child's just passed away, it is the heaviest of heavies in the human experience. It is so heavy. It's like the air has weight. And people ridicule Jesus, and he walks into that, and he is the way, the truth, and life. He's the resurrection in the life. He calls forth Lazarus from the grave. He raises the widow named son in the funeral procession, and he walks in that room, and he says, little girl, I say to you, arise. That's who we serve. That's who we're singing songs to with Jack and Toby. The one who walks in the room and says, little girl, I say to you, arise. That's why we praise Jesus. That's why we praise his name. That's why we sing his praises. That's why we wake up and say, praise the Lord. That's why we shine for him and tell everyone in Decapolis what great things he's done for us. Because he walks in the room and he says, little girl, arise. He doesn't let the ridicule stop him. He, he, and it's, on, it's just, he just, little girl, arise. Everywhere he went, it's just like he's clothed and in his right mind. No, go tell your family. Tell everybody. Let them know. You touch me. You're healed. You're my daughter. You're healed. It's good. You're blessed. Go in peace. You, little girl, arise. This is Jesus. This is who we serve. This is the preeminent one in the church. This is the king of kings. This is the king of the Jews. This is the Lord of lords. This is who's building this church. This is who holds this church. And this is going to take this church to eternity. All who are here and all who come through it from now till the end of the age. And can I get an Amen. Yeah, little girl, arise. And he told him not to tell anyone. Isn't it interesting? 
The man in his right mind, hey, go tell everybody, little go arise. Which just leaves with this last thought. No two circumstances are ever the same. And the working of the Lord in your life, year after year, is never the same, let alone the people whose lives you love and care about. It's always in motion. It's always fluid and liquid with the Lord. Why does he say to Peter and John, follow me, but then when the clothed man's in his right mind, he says, no, you can't. You, you go tell everyone. And calls her daughter, but not someone else. It's just, who knows? And then Jerry's situation That was a really special, private, holy moment for Jairus, his wife, their daughter. Jesus raises your 12-year-old from the dead. I'm thinking, you don't care what the religious leaders think. And (laughs) he might not have been a a ruler of synagogue anymore, you know, but hey, uh, those things come and go. The Lord, faith, your daughter, clothed in your right mind, touching his tassel, those are the things of eternity. It's great stuff in this passage tonight. I hope you're encouraged. I hope you're strengthened in your faith. And I hope you leave here tonight with the eyes of faith and a heart full of uh, joy in the Lord. Because you should. It's a very joyful chapter.